Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. Looking at this great overview, which is really what Ephesus is, it's like flying over a city and seeing all of the landmarks and the book of Ephesians is like that doctrinally. It shows you all of the important landmarks and ultimately hones in on our identity in Jesus. And so just a few verses in to the book of Ephesians, Paul almost can't stand it anymore. He's just like, I just need people to receive something supernaturally. I just need them for this to not just be head knowledge, not just to be information, not just to be something they think about, not just to be something they theoretically agree with. I need them to have this word imparted in their spirits in a way that only the Holy Spirit can do. I need them to receive this supernaturally. Like Jesus said to Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And you're blessed because of it. Something's happened in your life because of it. And this is, this is just what, what Paul does as he writes. He, 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 14 verses in, he begins to pray for the church of God. And he says, God, help them to know who they are. Help them to know the power that is at work within them. Help them to know the hope to which they have been called. Help them to know how the grace of God has saved them, has delivered them, has transformed them. Let them walk in who they are now, not who they used to be. And for the first three chapters that Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, for three chapters, he doesn't give any imperatives. There are no commands. There are no instructions. There, there's nothing for you to do in the first three chapters, bar one. There's only one thing that he tells us to do. There's only one imperative in those first three chapters, and that imperative is to remember. Remember that formerly you were cut off from Christ, but now you have made, been made alive together with Him. Just one thing that you are supposed to do is remember. Remember that you used to be one way, but now you're in a brand new way because of Jesus. And so we said that, that uh, understanding and walking in the righteousness and living the life that God has called you to live always begins not with what you have to do, but what has been done for you. What Jesus has done on the cross. That is the foundation. And, and later on, the Bible tells us that no other foundation can be laid, but that which has already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. It's his body, it's his blood, it's his life that is the foundation. And for three chapters, Paul just wants you to know, you are not a sinner, you are a saint. You are not the old person, you're a brand new creation. So make the shift in your mind from living according to who you used to be and begin to embrace wholeheartedly everything you now are in Christ. It is the spiritual truth, the God-honest truth of who you are. And in that, we find the power to live a life of substance and meaning, not by striving for righteousness, but walking in righteousness. The Bible tells us that, that the Scriptures are useful for training in righteousness, so you have the righteousness, you just have to train to walk in that righteousness. In other words, it's like if I gave you a sword, you're not asking me for a sword. I've already given you the sword. But what you can do is learn to wield the sword. Learn to, how, to, how to maneuver the sword, how to, how to thrust the sword, how to make the sword an effective tool in your hand. That's righteousness. 
You're not striving for righteousness. You're not asking for righteousness. You're not begging for righteousness. You are righteousness. You are light in Christ. You're not even asking God for light. You are light is what it tells us in Ephesians 4. You've become light in Christ. But now how do we walk in that light? How do we actively live it out? And so as we get into Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, uh, Paul transitions and he says that he now wants us to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. So now there's a walk. Now there's an expression. Now there's some instruction of how we live it out in order to reflect the goodness of God in our lives. 40 imperatives in the last three chapters. From chapter 4 to chapter 6, 40 things that Paul instructs us to do. Powerful things that will help us make a difference as, as we live them out. But what I want you to notice, and we've, we've covered this, I'm just recapping a little bit because it's going to set up what I want to share with you today. But what I want you to notice is the motivation for righteous living. Because I'm going to say this categorically right from the beginning, the law is not a sufficient motivation. It's not going to motivate you. In fact, the Bible tells us that the law stirs up sin and rebellion. So if you want to be a really strong sinner, live according to the law. That's how, you want to be a stronger sinner than you are today? Get some laws out, write them down, and try and live by them. They're going to stir up rebellion in your life and in your heart. The law stirs up rebellion. But the grace of God... And the motivation of God, the love of God, does something more powerful than what the law could ever do. And so I want us to, to look at this. I'm going to just start by recapping, just going to Ephesians 4, verse 25 to 32. Ephesians 4, 25 to 32, because we've looked at this. And I want to actually show you how this motivation um, is, is shown. So, so, so Paul speaks about the fact that as believers, there are certain things that are no longer fitting for our lives. They don't fit, they don't work, they're not, they're not for us, it's not how we're supposed to live. Because we've got a new identity in Christ. Ephesians 4.25 says, therefore, there's a big therefore there. That therefore means because of everything that we've shared. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So you shall not bear false witness or you shall not lie is a command in the Ten Commandments. But Paul, who was trained in the commandments, doesn't mention that one of the commandments there when referring to this instruction. He, does, he doesn't say, put away falsehood and speak the truth because it's command number, so and so. No, he says, for we are members of one another. Why would you be dishonest with, your motivation is that we belong to each other. Why would you lie to somebody who is your brother or who is your sister who, or to whom you belong? Why would you act dishonestly towards someone else? They, that's not love. So we're called to walk in love. So love is the motivation. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, forgive. Do not be angry. Do not murder. He could have mentioned that. Jesus said that if you're angry with your brother, it's the same as committing murder. Paul could have said, well, there's the commandment. He doesn't mention the command. He says this is the motivation so that you don't give opportunity for the devil. That you don't give the enemy a place in your heart. Let the thief no longer steal. Another one of the commandments, don't steal. But rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. What is the motivation? 
Is it law keeping? No, it's love. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Wow. The motivation for this righteous life that we are called to live is not because we're trying to earn God's righteousness by our law keeping, but because we have been called to a higher calling, which is to love those around us. To love others the same way that Jesus has loved us. That is the greatest command. In this, this was the old rabbinical summary of the whole law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the whole thing summed up. Now we're living the spirit of the law without following the letter of the law. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We get to imitate our God. We get to live like God and be like Jesus when we are able to love others and be tender-hearted towards others instead of being harboring bitterness and being selfish and self-centered. So he doesn't refer to the law, but a new motivation. And ultimately, that motivation allows us, as we walk in love, allows us to reveal who God is to our world. Just like Jesus said, when, 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 when Philip came up to him at the end, and Philip was always, I feel so sorry for Philip. If you've, if you've read the Gospels, Philip is that one guy next to Peter that like just should think an extra second longer before he says anything, right? I mean, you are a disciple of Jesus. You're in one of the most privileged positions to be able to walk this earth with the Son of God, and he just keeps seeing, saying the dumbest things. But you know why God put Philip in the group? Because Philip is all of us, right? That's like, we are Philip through and through. We are the ones who would just say the dumbest things. But Jesus, did you really? And Jesus like, have I been with you so long? Like, you still don't get this. And at the end of Jesus' ministry, Philip goes, so Jesus, when are you gonna show us the Father? I get literally, it's not in the scriptures, but I'm pretty sure Jesus did a face palm in that moment, right? And he's like, Philip, have I been with you so long and you still don't get this? Those that have seen me have seen the Father. And you know, if we are to represent the image of Christ to our world, people should be able to say that those who have seen us have seen the Son. They've seen Jesus. They know who Jesus is as a result. There's something powerful in this that, that, that we get to reflect. And so in this process, we are light in our world. We're called to be light. And Ephesians 5, 13 to 15 says, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible, listen to this, isn't enlightened or, or the light shines on it, but is light. Anything that becomes visible is light. There's a transformation when the thing, when the light shines on you, you don't just get light, but you become light to this world. Therefore it says, and this is our message. This is the message of the church. This is what we preach. This is, this is, this is the call of God to every dead heart in our city. He says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. In the same way that we've been made alive together with Christ, every person who hears this word, the truth penetrates their hearts, they respond in faith, and they rise from the dead. We're literally raising the dead in this city spiritually every week. That's your call. It's not just my call. I'm just here to equip you to do it. It's our call to go out into our city and to, through the way that we live and reflect and walk in love, reflecting the goodness of God, 
Our very lives are making a declaration over our workplaces, over our schools, over our city, over our communities, over our families. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There is a life for you to live. You will not just have God's light shine on your life, but you will become the light of God. God's going to transform you. And so Paul says, look carefully then how you walk. Church, believer, Christian, not as unwise, but as wise. See, this is not about, even we spoke about that foundation that Jesus laid that no other person can lay. The Bible says, take heed therefore how you build on this foundation. Because you can choose to build cheap or you can choose to build for eternity. You can build with hay, straw, or stubble. Things that will be burned up by the fire. Or you can build with gold and silver and precious stones. And the day, capital D, will declare it. Each one's work will become apparent. Though he will be saved, he will be saved as one who has passed through fire. So yeah, you could just ignore all of that and live for yourself anyways. And you'll still be saved if your faith is in Jesus. But man, you've squandered an opportunity to live a great life. A life of impact and influence. That's what it's all about. He, he says this. He says, walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time that you have. Because the days are evil. Making the best use of the time. What's the best use of your time? The scriptures argue that it's not to live for yourself. And you know, when you're, when you're trying to be so self-righteous that you're following all the laws, you're still living for yourself. It's still selfishness. You've made your own efforts in righteousness your primary goal. You've become so good that you're all bad. It's the issue Jesus had with the Pharisees. These guys did everything the law commanded, but lost their heart for people. Jesus said that you've, you, 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 you even strained the gnat, which was reference to how they would drink wine and and keep their teeth closed so that the gnat, which was an unclean animal under the law, would not enter their systems. But Jesus is like, you do that, but you swallow camels whole. Camels were also unclean animals you weren't allowed to eat under the law. And they're like, you're, you're picking every little law and every little thing to be so self-righteous. But then deep down, you're actually lost your love for people. You're swallowing camels whole. You're, you're missing the whole point of the law, which was to love God and love people. Don't become so good that you become bad. If your goodness has produced such pride and self-righteousness in your life that you are turning sinners away from Jesus, then you're having the opposite effect of what God intended for your life. You're not reflecting the goodness of God. You're, you're doing something else. You're turning people away. So that's the, the reason why we live changed lives and why we discern what is pleasing to God is so that we, can, that we can reflect His goodness to others, that we can echo the hope of our salvation to a world that desperately needs to be saved. And so the motivation for walking worthy of your calling is the value of that call, is God's heart and love for people to reach our world and love those around us. And so in Ephesians 5, 1 or 2, which is really central to this whole passage, to all of these chapters 4, 5, and 6, he says, therefore, again, therefore, be imitators of God. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Be imitators of God as children that are loved, as people that are loved. Imitate God. And walk in love. So you are loved. So walk in the love that you've received 
as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, our world, even right now in our world, is trying to redefine what love is. It's creating, it's breaking it down, and it's trying to redefine, uh, twisting the language and, 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 and coming with, with, with human schemes and, and, and earthly wisdom, which, you know, like the Bible says, they twist the scriptures to their own destruction. Our world wants to redefine love, and what our world has effectively come to redefine love as is complete personal fulfillment and limitless self-expression. Oh, love is that I can just be whatever I want to be and feel whatever I want to feel. It's all about me. Everyone deserves to be happy. Have you heard people say that? Absolute garbage. Hey, you deserve to be happy. What did I do deserve to be happy? It's, it's like this, we've just, like self-love has become the, the, the religion of our day. I'm not saying you shouldn't love yourself, but there's a way that you love yourself in knowing who you are in Christ, loving yourself because you're loved by Christ, as opposed to loving yourself as the primary end of life. As long as I'm happy. That's the primary end that our world, and that's how they've redefined love. But God is the only one who gets to define love because it's who he is. He didn't come up with the idea. He is love. And so God is the final word on love. And he, through his actions towards us, a rebellious and sinful people, showed us, he demonstrated what love looks like, what real love looks like. You want to know what real love is? It tells us in, in, in Romans 5 verse 8, it says, But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the demonstration. When we were rebels and God-haters and, and running in the opposite direction, God said, even though you, you will not receive me, I love you so much, I'm going to give myself up for you. That's the demonstration of godly love. So that we could be made alive together with Christ. And so now that we are made alive together with Christ, we are called, like we see here in Ephesians, to walk, to imitate God in that, and to walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So, so he tells us there again in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ. Everybody say, as Christ. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And what did he do when he gave himself up for us? How did that make God the Father feel? It tells us that this was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When Jesus gave himself up so that all of us, the people that God loves, could be saved, that pleased God. And so we see in Ephesians 5.10, he says, guys, when you're living your life, just try to discern. I love how, how Paul's like, I know this is going to be a struggle for you, but just try to discern what is pleasing to God. What is it that is pleasing to God? Your religiosity, your self-righteous piety. No, to do what Jesus did. It pleases God when we live the kind of lives that witness to others because God loves the others. He wants you to experience the fullness of living a righteous life, but he also wants you to do what Jesus did, which is to give yourself up so that others may be saved. True, self-sacrificial love. 
That is what true love looks like. It gives itself up. It's not about self. It forgets about, it takes, it does not regard self, but it regards everyone else as more important than itself. So loving self-sacrificially is pleasing to God. Learning to walk in love and reflecting his goodness is what pleases God. And so I really want us to mature in this. As Christians, we've got to mature. We've got to get beyond the, oh God, I did three good things and four bad things today, so I'm such a failure. Because living with that kind of scorekeeping, how many of you have got a, like a secret scorecard? How good of a Christian was I today? Yeah, I shouldn't have lost my temper in traffic. All right, that's point deducted, you know. Shouldn't have shouted at my kids, point deducted, you know. I ignored my wife when she, when she asked me to do something for her. Same thing she asked me to do six months ago, point deducted, you know. So that's, that's how we, and then we're like, okay, God, I've had kind of an average week. That is so immature. Because at the end of the day, it's not about how good or bad you're being as a reflection back on you. It's about how effective you're being in reflecting God's glory to others. The question is, did the way I live my life this week represent Jesus to those around me? And I've got to tell you, as, a, as somebody who's been preaching the gospel since I was 16 years old, I have so often felt insecure or had different emotions after you preach. You know, like you get off stage and you evaluate how, how well did I do? And a while back, a man of God said to me, a pastor in our, in our city, in fact, he's in Pretoria, but he said to me, you know what? I have one thought when I get off stage after preaching, just one thought. Did I represent Jesus well? And from that time, because if I make it any more than that, I'm making it about me. So I get off the stage and I ask myself one question. Did I represent Jesus well? If the answer is yes, I don't think about it again. I trust that God does the work that I can't do because if I do more than that, it's again about me. So your goodness is not about you. In fact, the only way you can be good is by the grace of God. It's about what the impact it has on others. It's about serving others. Otherwise, our self-righteous acts are simply causing a stench in the nostrils of God. They do not please Him because you've made it all about you. So again, don't become so good that you become bad. Discern what pleases God. So the Bible tells us that we are to imitate God in loving self-sacrificially. That's the context. That's the truth of love. That's how we're supposed to do it. Now watch the context as we progress from there. Watch the context to which Paul turns first and foremost, right? You think to yourself, where do we begin living this out from day to day? Like I got to go immediately into the street. I got to park my car on the side of the road if there's some guy walking along there and I've got to jump out and I've got to show them the love of Jesus. Right? Or when, when somebody breaks down uh, and they have a flat tire, I've got to jump out and I've got I to show them the love of Jesus by helping them change their tire. You know, we always think externally. But we do not begin to live this out. Ground zero isn't in the streets or in the mission field or in the church or, or in public spaces. Ground zero is actually at your home. That's where we begin. Specifically in your marriage, in your family, with your kids. And, and so Paul immediately turns to relationships, beginning with marriage and going on to, to parenting and stuff. And that stuff we'll look at. But today, I want to just look at how powerful this is in the context of marriage. How we get to live self-sacrificially 
how we get to experience and give true love, reflecting the heart of God to each other and as a couple to the world, as that complete image of Christ, that image of God in which we were created. We get to be an expression of that to our world. We get to be a witness. We get to be a picture. We get to be a testimony of what real love looks like. And this is a broken area of society, of our world. So let's look at this as he goes into Ephesians 5. And what I'm going to do is, and I always do this if you're new with us this morning, I'm just going to read a little passage. I'm going to read about 10, 11 verses, verses and then, then I'm going to just pull out a few things uh, in the few minutes we have left, right? So, so first of all, he says wives. He begins with, with the wives. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And so he, he literally just moves between uh, the point of talking about a husband and a wife, a, an earthly relationship between a man and a woman, and he then begins to talk about Jesus and the church. He kind of just, it's so fluid between those two points. He's just like the, the, the marriage and what we have in Jesus, it's like the same thing. You can talk about it in the same sentence. He says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. He then quotes what is the central verse in this entire passage. And I'm, actually gonna, I'm gonna go to it uh, in a minute in its original context. But he says, therefore, a man, he quotes this, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast. There's a holding fast. There's a, we're in this for life. We're in this together. We're, there's a covenant there. Hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. The two, that were two separate individuals, have now become one. He says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying, what I'm saying, what I'm telling you is, it refers to Christ and the church. It refers to Jesus and his love for us. By the way, if you're wondering who the church is, who the bride is, it's you. It's every individual in this room. It's me, it's us. We are the bride. This whole thing, this whole marriage reveals the picture of, of God's love for us. He says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. Now, I remember, and, and I mean, things have progressed so far since then, but 20-odd years ago when, when, when I was in, still in high school or finishing high school, I remember in my maybe grade 11, grade 12 class having to do an English speech on marriage. And so having already been a passionate preacher of the gospel by that point, I took out the Bible and I read this verse, and my English teacher did not like it. <laughs> Wives, submit to your husbands. She stopped me. She stopped my speech. I'm like, I'm in the middle of my, I just started my speech. It's like, I don't like that. It's so patriarchal. It's so outdated. It's, it's, it's from another time. It's oppressive. You see, that happens. It's oppressive when your primary goal is self-expression. It's about me. I don't want to be submissive. It's the pride of our generation. 
I don't want to submit. It's easy for the world in this context to dismiss what the Bible says about marriage. And so in these, in this culture, the world has made more of a mess of marriage than anything that has ever been experienced in any generation before. And taking marriage advice from the world is literally like asking a blind man for directions. They're utterly lost in this regard. The world has no clue about marriage. It sees it purely as a traditional, institutionalized arrangement that has no bearing. And, and I, I sit with couples. I sat with a couple again this week. I do premarital counseling with people. I sit with couples and, and, and they're living together. And I'm like, just, they have no idea that there would be some implication of that or some, some impact of that on their marriage. No idea. Because what is marriage? It's just a contract. It's become completely secular in the way that people view it. And so they look for alternatives. They look for other ways to do it other than the way the Bible describes. And, and, and because of this, there has been so much hurt. So many kids have grown up in the hurt of, of broken marriages and grown up in two homes as opposed to one or, or experience. We've experienced the pain of it. That actually when the world speaks about marriage, it speaks from a place of hurt. It speaks from a broken place. And so, so it tries to salvage some of the romantic notions around it without taking God's instruction for how it was designed to work. And therefore just perpetuating the brokenness. So when Paul speaks into marriage here, he at that time already recognizes the fact that this is a massive area of brokenness in our world. And what God intended as the single most life-giving relationship that you can have on planet earth has because of that great potential, like a pendulum under the weight of sin, swung to become the most destructive environment for most people's lives. Children suffer. People are hurt. Communities are broken down. The very fabric of society is eroded. Even nations fall because of the brokenness that our world experiences in the context of marriage. And if, you've, and if you've been married at any point or even considered being married, you've probably already encountered some of that brokenness. It's not the way God intended it to be. Marriage is constantly coming under attack from the enemy as well. So that central verse, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, actually goes all the way back to the beginning of a creation, goes to Genesis 2. And I wanted to read Genesis 2, 21 to 24. Because it says here, and this is something so beautiful in how God created mankind. And when I say mankind, I mean humanity, male and female. He created them in his image, male and female. We're all in the image of God. He says, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is, a, this is the one 
relationship in life that God has destined and designed for you to be yourself. We pretend in so many spheres and areas and relationships, we always have to put our best foot forward. We can never just reveal ourselves and show ourselves, but marriage is supposed to be that place where you can truly be yourself. Just like God intends for your relationship to be like with Him. Not coming and putting on your Sunday best on a Sunday saying, Jesus, I'm going to live a great life and then going out there and living life without Him. But you truly being authentic before God. This is what marriage is. This is what it, what it shows. And so in this powerful moment where woman was created from the same essence of life that God put in man, the two now becoming separate expressions of the image of God, they recognize that they belong together. That as these two expressions come together, they fulfill that image of Christ and the two become one flesh. They, 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 they are a full expression and reflection of who God is. This is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. John Milton says this, uh, John Milton, by the way, uh, incredible poet, and he wrote a poem by the name of Paradise Lost. And what he did in this poem is that he actually took this scripture in Genesis and, and the, the happenings in the Garden of Eden, and he just you know, filled in the color poetically. And so one of my favorite passages of, of poetry tells us that when God put Adam to sleep, he dreamt about the woman that God was creating. And when he woke up, she wasn't there. He didn't see her. And he began to panic because he realized of all the things that God created, there is nothing as incredible as this thing that was taken from within me that I am a part of, that is a part of me. We belong together. There's something so deep and connected there. And so John Milton describes it like this. He says, and I'll put this up on the screen. He says, she disappeared and left me dark. I waked to find her or forever to deplore. Her loss and other pleasures all abjure. When out of hope, he's hoping to find her, and out of hope, behold her not far off, such as I saw her in my dream, adorned with all her earth or heaven could bestow. To make her amiable, on she came, led by her heavenly maker, though unseen, and guided by his voice, nor uninformed of nuptial sanctity or marriage rites, grace was in all her steps, heaven in her eye, in every gesture, dignity, and love. I overjoyed could not forbear aloud, which means I was so overjoyed when I saw her coming towards me that I couldn't help but cry. This turn hath made amends. Thou hast fulfilled thy words, creator, bounteous and benign, giver of all things fair, but fairest this, of all thy gifts, nor envious I now see. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, myself, myself. Before me, woman is her name, of man extracted. For this cause, he shall forgo father and mother and to his wife adhere. And they shall be one flesh, one heart, one soul. This woman belongs to me. Now, I'll let you in in a little secret. It's by quoting that poem 
that I managed to get my wife to fall in love with me. Single guys, that one is for free. But the beauty of it is actually far deeper than we understand because Paul says this mystery is profound. This whole thing about how a man and a woman can come together like that, it's so massively profound. In Ephesians 5, 31, 32, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but he says, and I'm saying, I'm telling you that what it is saying is that it refers to Christ and the church. So in other words, Christ and the church is not a reflection of marriage. No, what this is telling us is that marriage, right from the beginning, was intended to be a prophetic expression of what God would do for His people, of what true love looks like, of the covenant that you and I get to have with God. That deep sense of connectedness, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones, is the level of unity that you have with Jesus. And your marriage is, is a prophetic illustration and expression of the God who had always promised that He would make covenant with His people. That's the level of intimacy and relationship and, and authenticity. They were naked and not afraid, not ashamed. That's the beauty of this great reflection of marriage. It shows how Jesus, the true bridegroom, left his father and his home in heaven and stepped out in search of his bride and having found her, gave himself up for her so that through that sacrifice, we could be reunited. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself so that the two become one flesh. You're not just a religious attachment to God. You're not just a church attender. You are his heart and soul. You have become one with him like a married couple becomes one. Marriage is a prophetic expression of the heart and the love of God. Finally, this morning, I just want to highlight one phrase that's going to be a game changer for your marriage, whether that's now or in the future. And allow your marriage to begin to reflect this powerful gospel message to everyone in the world. We actually saw it in Ephesians 5.2 already and I actually made you repeat it. Ephesians 5.2, it says, walk in love as Christ loved, as Christ loved and gave himself up for us. Ephesians 5.22 to 30, it says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. He goes on, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ Love the church. Love your wives like Jesus loved the church. What, did Jesus, what was Jesus willing to give for his church? Everything. Everything. He gave up heaven. He gave up his own life. He says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. You want to have a successful marriage? Do it as Christ does. Love like Jesus loves. Show grace, embrace, protect, take up the call of love, walk in it. 
The world has made a mess of marriage because it's made the high point of life self. Self-elevation, self-fulfillment. But the picture of love that we have in the Scripture is so different. And it shows us how marriage works. To love is to serve. The natural outflow of love is to serve. And so people think that this is all about leadership. Well, who's the head of the home? Who's leading? It can't be a man. That's patriarchal. No, to lead is to serve. Jesus said the greatest leaders are the greatest servants. And so it's not really about who's the greatest leader. It's about who is the greatest servant. And the more you make yourself a servant in the marriage, the greater your marriage will be. Two servants fulfilling their roles, the roles that God destined for them to fulfill, will always produce a powerful marriage. But when one is trying to elevate above the other, it just undermines the very fabric of, of the relationship. And so wives, quickly going to talk to you. Stop allowing the popular opinion of our day to fuel your selfish pride and serve your husband by respecting him, honoring him, and supporting him. I'll let you in. As a husband, I'll let you in. We need your support. We need it desperately. We need your love. We need your care. We need your understanding. We need you to help us carry the burdens that God has called us to carry in life. We can't do it without you. We want you to encourage us to lead our families and raise our children and, and, and serve our communities and, and build the kingdom in the way that God destined for us to do it. But we can't do it without your love. If you are constantly putting your husband or maybe even men in general down, you are eroding their ability to carry out the responsibility God has given them. For women to hate men is not biblical and it's not pleasing to God because it doesn't reflect His glory. Husbands, if you're gonna accurately reflect the heart of God to your wife and to your family, you have to get over your selfish desires. You have to put aside all the wants that you have in your own life, all those desires. You have to lean into the grace of God for you and pick up the responsibility that God has given you. That's what it means. You know, many, I said this to somebody the other day, when, when I was growing up, when I was a, a young man, I used to wonder, at what point do I know that I'm really a man? Is it when I go to gym a lot or, you know, when I, when I grow taller or, you know, I don't know, what, what makes a man? When I watch rugby. You know, since I've had kids and become a father and, and, and walked out my responsibility in the church and, and just followed the leading of God, when He told me to move, I moved. I've, for maybe 15 years, I haven't had that thought. When am I a man? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a funny thought right now. You know what made me a man? Taking up the responsibility that was mine. Taking it up. Men, take up your responsibility. What is your responsibility? Well, begin by loving your wives. Love them. Make sure they know that you love them. Cherish them. Protect them. Nourish them, look after them because they are you. You don't, you would look after, you feed yourself, feed your wife. Nourish her with your love. Love her the way that Jesus loved you and gave himself up for you. That's pleasing to God. 
She is flesh of your flesh and bone of your bone. So love your wife as yourself. The argument isn't about leadership. It's about servanthood. And according to Jesus, the greatest leaders are the ones who are the greatest servants. Finally, this allows us to fulfill Ephesians 5.21, where he says this. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Forgive each other. Be tenderhearted. Be kind. Love as God loved you. Imitate the love of God. Submit to one another in reverence to Christ. Consider each other as more important than yourself. Be humble. Fulfill the role God has called you to fulfill. And in that, we will begin at ground zero. When our marriages are healthy and our families are healthy and our lives are without that undue strife that the enemy always wants to seed, we will be able to reflect through that kind of self-sacrificial love towards those closest to us. We will already begin to be a great reflection to this world, not only of what love is, but of what love does. And people say, how do you love your wife so well? Well, because Jesus has loved me so well. I'm just reflecting His love.